Well, our scripture lesson today comes from one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, Acts chapter 2. Let's share in God's good word together. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Today we answer our calling as the people of God. Called by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. To follow and love in the name of Jesus Christ. Today we continue our series in the book of Acts. And we look at what true community looks like. True community looks like bringing heaven to earth. Where all are welcome. Where justice and righteousness and perfection all live side by side at the table. All are welcome. And we serve one another in love and in goodness and in kindness. All the fruit of God's Spirit reigning around us. And we find it in the book of Acts chapter 2. Now, it's true, the early church is going to struggle with racism and division um, in just a few chapters, but not quite yet. In Acts chapter 2, they have this beautiful, sweet moment, empowered by the Holy Spirit, where they understand one another, they work alongside one another, they share with one another, and I want to share that vision with you again today. As a way of introduction, last week we started with Acts chapter 1 and and went about halfway into Acts chapter 2, and we're going to pick up the story from there. And I want to remind you that last week, Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes, and the church begins, all in chapter one and a half. Now, this Pentecost um, is one of three annual pilgrimages that happens uh, for the Israelites. The entire household of Israel gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the goodness of God toward the nation. And two of these celebrations happen pretty much back to back. There's the Passover, where they remember the great salvation of their people and as they come through the Red Sea, and God saves them over and against the Egyptians. He saves them through the sea, and then he, the sea swallows up the Egyptians. And they remember the Passover night, where the spirit of death passes over all the Hebrew children, but then all the Egyptian children and livestock and everything else die that night. And so they come and they remember, and that's, that's where we get our Last Supper for, from, is from the Passover meal. And then 50 days after that, there was a second huge annual gathering called Pentecost. And so many, actually you might say most, of the folks that had been there uh, for Passover simply stayed. Um, imagine if you were walking to Grandma's from Tulsa to Oklahoma City, and you came up for Thanksgiving, you probably wouldn't walk back to turn around in just a few more days to walk back again. You would just stay there and celebrate both things together. That's how it was for the people of the day of Pentecost. They had been there for Passover. Many of them or most of them would have stayed for Pentecost, and then the Spirit came upon them, people from all over the known world. It's here that the very Spirit of God comes and rests on all these people from all around the world, uh, Jews that had spread throughout the known world. And they began to understand one another. And the church was born. And Peter uh, gives an incredible sermon on the day of Pentecost. And in verse 21, he says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now this was radical. Normally, when people thought about salvation, it was for a particular people at a certain time. 
And Peter was opening this up, that anyone um, who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. That's exactly what it says in verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that includes you and me today. That's the good news of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think about Peter, the first bishop, the first pope, the leader of the church, the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church, and even the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But you'll also remember this is the same Peter that walked on water for just a little bit and then was beneath the waves. This same Peter who denied even knowing Christ, even even walking with him or knowing him at all um, in the fire um, when the going went tough. Uh, Peter was silent. It is this same Peter, empowered now by the Holy Spirit. He's a changed man. He doesn't sound like his old self. He's new. He's a witness for the resurrected Christ. So Peter's um, first sermon goes like this. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, now he can say his name. He's emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders and signs that God did through him among you. As you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Now, you'll remember that it's not been but about 50 days since Jesus was crucified himself. Peter is putting himself in harm's way, talking to the very group of people who put Jesus on the cross. This was dangerous business. You crucified him, he says, and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up. God took this terrible thing and turned it for good, having freed him from death because it was impossible for him to be held by its power. This is the same Peter that once denied that he even knew Jesus, and now he risks his life as a witness. So the sermon continues. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you both see and hear. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made Him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, this leaves the crowd with a very difficult question. It might even leave you and I with a very difficult question. Will God forgive and restore people who participate in the Messiah's death if they repent? This is a really big question. If, think about this. If you are in a belief system where the long-awaited Messiah, the one that would save you, the one that would deliver you, if you killed him, if you were part of his death, would God forgive you? And they didn't know what to do about Judas because Judas had died. And they they didn't know what happened to him. There are still circles today that have quite the conversations about, is Judas in heaven or not? We know Jesus' heart that he would want him there, that he loved them. And he had him as, as close as sitting right next to him at the Last Supper on the very last night of his life. But but here's the question. What do you do about people who have actively worked against the will of God? Can they be forgiven? Well, Professor Robert Walls of the New Testament says this, Peter knows from personal experience that God gives betrayers 
second chances. Of course they can be forgiven. It is God's heart that all should be saved, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what Peter has just said. And so the, the scripture says this, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? What should we do? Friends, I want you to know that this is a sincere request. This is a sincere request of the people. They are worried. They want to know, can they be saved? Will God deliver them? They, they need instruction that will lead to forgiveness and their restoration with God and God's people. So Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. Now, just a moment, we're going to talk about what these two words mean, repent and forgiven, because sometimes I think they've lost their meaning because they're used so often. Uh, But for the early church, they had real power, and it made a huge difference in their life. And when you repent and you're baptized and you are forgiven, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very power of God with you. Now, repentance means a radical change of heart, a change of your mind, a change of your very life towards God and the things of God and where God wants you. If you've been in Bible study with me very long at all, you know that we talk about to repent is to turn around. If God's calling you to Dallas and you get to I-35, you have to be in the southbound lanes. And if somehow, some way, um, you took a left on Covell and you started headed towards Wichita, headed north, if you want to get to Dallas where God's calling you, you have to turn around. It's just that simple. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter how fast you're going in the other direction. At some point, you have to find a way to ask God to find, help you find a way to take the exit, turn around, and go in the direction that God is calling you to go. That's what repentance means. The second word that I want to bring up is forgiveness. The word forgiven means pardon. You know, like when a governor pardons somebody that's in jail... It doesn't mean they're not guilty. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't have been in jail. What it means is now they're free. Now they're out. And this in the early church included financial debts. When when your debts were forgiven, when your sin was forgiven, it was understood that that had a financial component to it. And so they held things in common and they also set people free who owed them money. You see, they understood that those pardoned of sin would then pardon the debt of others. If Jesus died for you and canceled your sin, a debt that you could never repay, then who would have the audacity to hold other people's petty little financial debts against them? If Jesus would pay something you could never pay, wouldn't you want to pay the debts of those that you could pay for those who owed you? That's simply how they saw it. Now, it's also true that they expected Jesus to be back on Thursday. So their understanding of the timeline is different than ours today. But I want to submit that to you for your consideration. Imagine all that Jesus has done for you. I want to hold very lightly and loosely anything that I might hold against someone else. I'm to pardon them, to set them free, to let them loose, to forgive them. And then Peter, with all the boldness he has within him, says this in verse 39. For the promise is for you. For your children and for all who are far away, I'd like for you to say this word with me. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to him. You see, the promise is for everyone. Say that with me. The promise is for everyone. 
There is now no distinction. Paul's going to write about this later. There is no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. This is for everyone and it is for you today. And if you have some doubt, if you have some doubts about your past, about some things that you feel badly about, if you're holding on to guilt or shame, be free of it, friends. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Turn your life towards him. Be baptized. Be forgiven. And receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to live anew, a new life in a new community with the saints of God. Peter continues in verses 40 and 41. He says this, And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. Well, friends, I think you could certainly say that we continue to live in a corrupt generation and we need one another. We need God. We need to be baptized. We need to turn our lives towards God and we need to begin to live differently as a light to the world. Friends, in one day, the Spirit of God took the church from 120 to 3,000. And by the book of Acts chapter 4, it's at 5,000. In two chapters, they go from 3,000 to 5,000. They add 2,000 in two chapters. The church is on the move. The Spirit is moving. The people of God are going out in mission. But let's talk about what that mission looks like, what true fellowship really is. True fellowship shares more than common beliefs and core values. Now, are common beliefs good? Sure they are. Are core values good? Yes, of course. We need to know what we're about, but it's much more than that. It's about actually being friends with God and friends with one another, actually being there for one another, showing up for your people, that's what church is about. It's about loving God with all that we are, our heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So hopefully you know this scripture if you've been a part of our church very long. Acts 2.42 says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Friends, this is the very verse that we found the church on here at Acts 2. It's on both of our buildings. And this is what we're about. And so, in case um, you're just now joining us, it means this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching uh, is exactly that. People who had walked with and knew and seen the risen Lord. And that included their scriptures. I would remind you that when they studied the scriptures in the early church... They didn't have the New Testament until 325, uh, at least in that form. The scriptures that, is, that are referenced is the Old Testament. And one of the scriptures that they would have known by heart is Psalm 133.1. It says this, How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in, say it with me, unity. Unity. This is what the early church was about, about being unified in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, they devoted themselves to the Greek word is koinonia. And this Greek word koinonia, we translate as fellowship. But friends, it is a lot more than coffee and donut holes. And it's certainly a lot more than gossip. Fellowship is being there for one another, caring for one another, being there in the hard moments and the joyous moments when people have babies and when people call hospice and all the places in between. They devoted themselves to fellowship, caring for one another's physical, yes, our physical needs and our spiritual well-being as a community of friends. It wasn't something that the pastor did. It was something that they did as a family of faith. 
And that's how it is to be again today. The vision of the church is to be there for one another in every season of life, to offer forgiveness and grace, and to help each and every one of us repent and turn our lives individually and corporately towards God and God's will. One of the things that we would not say normally today is that it also excluded fellowship with demons. They understood very clearly in ways that maybe we do not, that there's a choice to be made. If you're going to turn your life towards God, it means you're going to turn your life away from many other things, actually all other things. So we want to be solely focused on God and bringing heaven to earth. We're doing what what God wants done to be done. That's what we're about. So I want to talk to you about this fellowship of the saints. It's only possible when we have fellowship with God. Fellowship of the saints is made possible by fellowship with God. And this is something the early church and the apostles knew very well. That the prophet Enoch, he walked with God. Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith and our faith, um, and the Muslim faith. He was called a friend of God. And Moses talked with God face to face. This relationship, this fellowship with God, empowers us as the church to be able to have true fellowship with one another. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live together. They have fellowship with one another perfectly. And as we connect to that, then we too can have fellowship here in this place as we bring heaven to earth. So not only did they um, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, they also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, breaking of bread is both in our homes, eating with glad and generous hearts. We're going to get there in just a second. But also the sacrament of communion for us. That we are empowered by the very grace of Jesus coming into our life each week through your juice and crackers at home uh, or here uh, in God's house, in the house of God. And prayer. You know, God can do more in five seconds than we can do in a lifetime of ministry. So friends, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayers. And, and, and that's what it says in Acts 2.42. There's all four pieces. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, scripture, fellowship, to really um, being a community for God in the world with one another, to the breaking of bread in homes and the temple for us at home and church, and, and prayer. Our founder, John Wesley, was so convinced about the power of prayer and the need for it that he said this, God will do nothing on earth except an answer to believing prayer. And so how do we live this out? How do we live this scripture out? Well, the early church did life together in this way. The scripture says, All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. The Spirit was really on the move. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. You see, what we're talking about is God's people on earth are to reflect heaven on earth where solidarity and unity reign. Single focused on God, God's healing, God's power, God's love, God's redemption, God's justice, God's kindness, God's peace. And you might think that this was brand new, but in actuality, the way of life had already been practiced by a group known as the Essenes. They were a sect within Judaism from about um, 2 B.C. until about 68 A.D. Um, There was a group of them um, that lived about 30 miles east-southeast of Jerusalem. 
Uh, Chantel and I had the great opportunity to take a group there uh, in 2017. Uh, it's out in the desert. It, it looks like this. And, and as you look, this, this would be looking on east. You would see the, the Dead Sea, and there is nothing out there. It's super hot um, and not very hospitable. But that's where these scenes, they left Jerusalem. Uh, they thought that the temple worship had become corrupt. They didn't want to have anything to do um, with the religious peace of the time and the politics of the time in the Roman Empire. And so they moved out here, uh, like I say, about 30 miles east-southeast of Jerusalem. And on one side, um, and I'll, I'll show you a video here I took with my phone, so it's not very good, but I want to show it to you. Um, you know, don't fall in the pit. It's a very desert area with mountains on one side and then the sea on the other. And you can see that hole there. Um, that's where um, they would live. And so you can see it's very, very rugged terrain. Um, and they would have a, a really strict religious life, but they were very much removed um, from the problems uh, and the temptations of the world. And they lived together in community. And so um, I want to show you that uh, photo one more time because it's interesting. They would actually have to repel from the top down. They wouldn't climb up to it. They would actually come down into it to live. Now, this particular cave um, is is not from the time of the Essenes. The Essenes lived in that whole area. And this is where the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was found. Uh, this is known as Qumran, and it is the, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And so um, it's really a remarkable place. And we believe that that's where John the Baptist was. When Jesus came down to be baptized by John, John was coming up from this region outside of Jerusalem. And so this idea, these, these Essenes, these people that were waiting on the Messiah, waiting on the kingdom of heaven, the early church tried to emulate. And they knew the power of it. And I want to recommend it to you again today as the people known as Acts 2. So this is how they lived it out. Daily, they spent much time together and they ate in one another's homes. The scripture says, day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. What would our lives have to look like if we were going to have the goodwill of all people? Well, first of all, I want to remind us that they were glad and generous. They were happy people. They weren't sad sacks. Uh, they weren't gripey. You know, they, they weren't caring, if you know what that is. Uh, they were glad and generous. They were happy people. They blessed others. Sorry for all the Karens out there. It's my bad. They were glad and generous. Praise God and had the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. You see, when we repent, when we turn our life towards God, when our hearts are forgiven, when we're set free in Christ, then good things happen. People are drawn to that. The number of those being saved. Now, notice this key word, being saved. Salvation is something that is offered to all of us, to everyone. The scripture is very clear about that. But it's also still a process. And I know that's hard for some of you when you hear me say that. But remember that this salvation is about healing. It's about deliverance. It's about being where God wants you. And that takes time. So the word saved in the Bible, it means healed or delivered. And sometimes healing is miraculous and it happens just like that. And sometimes healing takes years. Whether that's physical healing uh, of cancer and you go through your chemo treatments or whether that's spiritual healing and you're working with a counselor, uh, whether that's emotional healing 
uh, or mental healing, sometimes that takes years. And so I just want you to know that this act of salvation is something that we can depend on God. God is at work. We can trust God for that healing, for that deliverance. But it may take longer than any of us would like. So our action steps for this week uh, are these. First of all, I hope you'll continue to read the book of Acts with me. Um, Hopefully you had already read the book of Acts chapter 2 this week as we covered chapters 1 through 5. This next week, I hope you'll read chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, It gives you a couple extra days there to catch up if you miss one. So I hope you'll do that. And then I want to invite us, um, both individually and as a church, to act and live in a way this week to make possible having the goodwill of all the people. What can you do as a person who's turned your life towards Christ to intentionally act for the good of others this week? And in particular, as broken as our world is around race right now, if there's a way to act, to bring justice, to help the hurting, to bless those maybe who've even persecuted you, now is our time, church. I want to invite you to work against racism this week. I want you to work against the things that tried to divide the early church, racism, social inequity, and class divisions. And over the next number of weeks, as you read the next chapters in the book of Acts, you're going to see that the church, even the leaders of the church, really struggled with race and class. There were all sorts of different groups that were divided, and it took the Holy Spirit and a lot of working it out for them to come together. And we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. As you read the book of Acts, it's, it's inescapable. You can't miss it. And so as we do this work, I want to lead, leave you with this quote from Andy Stanley that really touched me this week. He says this, The people who make a difference in the world are not the people who believe right. They are the people who act and react when something isn't right. And if you're following the news at all in the last month, you know that this season we're in is not right. We have people losing their lives, riding in the streets, losing their businesses, being placed in harm's way as people of color, physicians, law enforcement, teachers, restaurant workers, Friends, this is the time to act and live in such a way that all the people around us can be blessed. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.